Dr. Alexandra Phelan is a 2013 Pratt Foundation John Monash Scholar who has a Bachelor of Science degree in Biomedical Sciences and a Bachelor of Laws degree from Monash University, as well as a Doctor of Law from Georgetown University. She's currently an Assistant Professor at the Center for Global Health Science and Security in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Georgetown University School of Medicine, where she works on legal and policy issues related to infectious diseases, most recently, COVID-19. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So you're joining us now from the United States. How long have you been in the US? So it's actually, it's, it's quite surprising to me to, to calculate this up, but it's actually nearly nine years now. You know, I think when I got the Monash scholarship, I was going to be over here for maybe two years and write up my dissertation from Australia. And now nine years later, I'm, I'm still here. And what's the plan? Is there a plan? Do you know when you're coming home or is the US now home? No, I think Australia will always be home and it's always just a matter of trying to work out, will it be, you know, in two years time or will it be in five years time? Um, I've, I've kind of taught myself that predicting when I go back to Australia is a bit hard. You know, I, I think a lot of Australians uh, who have been overseas find that transition back to Australia quite difficult because it's, um, you know, the timing of what, what roles to step into and where you can, um, you know, make the most impact. So I think I'd, it's all about the timing of that for me is when I could go back and, and make an impact back home. Have you been back since since you, w- you went over there? Have you been back to Australia? Yeah. So for the first five years when I was doing my doctorate, I came back most winters and I'd come back for, you know, a good four, four months or so. But I haven't been back since uh, October 2019 um, and currently don't have any flights booked to get back to home. So I'm very much missing it. So you've been there living and working during the height of the COVID-19 outbreak. What was that like? My work on COVID-19 actually started on the 31st of December 2019 when um, I, I speak Mandarin and um, have lived in China and you know, working on infectious diseases, keep a close eye on um, alerts in China. And so from the 31st of December all the way through still to today, um, I've been working, you know, more than full time on on the pandemic. Um, You know, I think the first couple of months were were deeply frustrating of trying to get international action and and working a lot on what was happening in China and then here in the US uh, and back, back in Australia, actually. And then, you know, we, we really had the epidemic peak and I was in New York City for the, the New York City epidemic. Um, and I think, you know, it's very, in one, in one way, working on the pandemic, even though it was, you know, 15 plus hours a day was a distraction or at least it made me feel as though I was doing something and I could, you know, I had some empowerment in actually being part of the response um, you know, it's had its ebbs and flows with, you know, Delta peaking, work picked up and so it's, and then Omicron. So the variants very much track the sorts of work that I do as well. Um, so it's been, uh, I don't want to ever frame any of this as having a silver lining. And even though it has been an incredibly productive part of my career in terms of publications and having an impact, you know, I, I think it really brings home what's important and, um, for me, that still is very much it's health, it's family, 
and the experience of going through a pandemic like this, even when it's so closely tied to the work that I do, I think has just reinforced that. Can I just bring you back to what you said? So you first became aware of it on the 31st of December, 2019. So were you actually working there or did you get an alert? Because, you know, that, that I think was the, the first time that, that word got out. So you, you, were, you were right there. I, I'm keen to know where you were and what you were reading and whether you knew then that this had the potential to escalate. So I think, um, you know, as, a, as a, um, a lawyer, as an academic, as a scientist, I go back to, well, what's the actual evidence? And I think on the 31st of December, at that point in time, I remember tweeting on that day saying, you know, 2019 gives us just one more thing. Um, you know, this is a novel, novel pneumonia, a cluster of cases, um, something, you know, there have been tests run for flu and SARS. So by that stage, I'd seen um, a, a lab report uh, via Weibo um, uh, that had been circulating uh, on Chinese social media. And, you know, so I think at that point in time, being someone who's worked on, on epidemics and particularly with something like a, a potential coronavirus, which is always in our mix for something like this, um, or a novel influenza, uh, it is a, an alert but not alarmed. Um, it's we need to find out. Uh, and so that was on the 31st of December. By the 3rd of January, when we had a, we knew there was a, a novel coronavirus. Um, you know, you immediately start flashing back to, to SARS in 2002, 2003, and realizing that this is something that needs to be taken incredibly seriously. Um, my first alert was um, for those of us who work in the field. There's a, a incredible group called um, ProMed that send out alerts um, that pick up and scan news media. The actual very first alert was not was not ProMed, but actually a, a savvy journalist at, at Finance Sina in China who picked up on the uh, the local health authorities alert. So, I mean, the the chronology was a was a whole other area of my work last year. Um, so I, I probably can get right into the the hours and the seconds of each alert. Um, yeah, so it was part of my work with the independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response, which the WHO set up to. Uh, assess that first three months of the of the pandemic and um, you know I think there's a lot of still misunderstanding about exactly what was known and not known and how information happens the beginnings of an outbreak have a fog of outbreak uh, does occur but you know really this brought together um, a lot of my interests and background both you know in infectious diseases and law and 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 China and I remember early January when a lot of people were dismissing the seriousness of, of the information or the lack of information we were getting uh, out, of, out of China. I remember saying the point that, you know, 2020 is not 2002. Like, it's not going to be the same as SARS. Uh, we have much better response capabilities. But 2020 is also not 2016. And a lot has had changed over the last, that last four years in terms of information coming out of uh, the new administration there in China. Um, so I think really what it what it demonstrated to me is just how nuanced the different levels of of um, expertise and background and attention that uh, really made it a particularly difficult first three months um, working on the response, and then you know then the the rest of the pandemic became difficult for other reasons. <laughs> well, of course, I was going to ask: Can you offer an opinion on the world response? even in the early days, as, as to whether, 
it was appropriate or otherwise dealing with the first pandemic in a very long time? Yeah, so I think the the first thing to say is it's um, when we talk about what response we expect from governments with a pandemic, what we saw was that just was absolutely none of that. So we're not even talking about lockdowns or highly restrictive measures. We're, we're talking about um, setting up active surveillance, recognize, which means actively you know, searching and testing for potential coronaviruses in cases that appear to hospitals or clinics, um, getting our diagnostics set up, um, uh, rap, rather than focusing only on travellers from China, recognising that in our globalised world at that point in time, a virus can be anywhere it wants in the world within 36 hours. Um, so there were a lot of failures in which when that first alert went up in those first days of January, but then especially on the 30th of January when the uh, WHO Director General declared a public health emergency of international concern, like that was the moment for governments to to really step up and do some of these basic epidemic response measures. And they failed. They they implemented travel bans on China, which there's there's a bit of nuance on how you can use travel restrictions to slow if they're appropriately targeted, but they weren't. They were highly discriminatory in the, the way they were in, in pl- put in place and really ineffective. But I think we look at Australia and you can see where in some circumstances having that local public health response uh, can help um, use the benefits of that um, and so yeah I think the, the general consensus is the the international community and countries around the world completely failed and they really February is the month in which uh, we lost the chance to stop this. And so two years later February 2022 what's your reaction to what you've witnessed? So I, I mean, that that could be an entire podcast on a series on its own. So I'll, I'll only do some some high level highlights. I think uh, what we've seen is a retreat into nationalism by particularly high income countries. Um, you know, I think the grey one of the greatest moral catastrophes that we've observed in our time, in my time, is uh, the way high income countries. Um, essentially stockpiled vaccines once they're available uh, and use different legal measures to prevent the global sharing of that of the technology and the know-how. The second thing is we've had one of the most incredible scientific uh, discoveries, advancements um, since the polio vaccine and that is these incredible coronavirus vaccines that um, we were able to get up uh, and distributed within sort of you know 12 to 15 months of the pandemic beginning, uh, and that's just incredible. Um, and I think we shouldn't discount that when the world puts its political, technical, and financial resources towards a goal, it can actually achieve incredible things. Um, and I hope that we don't lose lose the lesson there. The final third major um, major aspect of the pandemic that has you know is notable is um is the role of misinformation uh you know we have these vaccines but we still are dealing significant with significant number of deaths uh, infections of people who um who have uh, been exposed to misinformation or, or have mistrust in uh in the process or um based on what they've been told through through a range of different media and i think that is an incredibly thorny issue that um, 
we don't yet have the answers to how we are going to deal with that, the implications of that that go well beyond this pandemic, but other crises that we may face, um, you know, climate change, just to, to give an example. Uh, and that the those three issues, I think, stand out at the very high level um, of sort of key notable things. So you've got a, a very interesting career in the sense that you're a scientist and a lawyer that I think potentially work both both sides of the brain. So how was it that you're able to study both and be interested in both? I have a lot of interests. <laughs> I am very, I have a very um, eclectic attention span. And, you know, I had that during high school. And when I was picking universities, Monash University was the one university that would let me study both my Bachelor of Biomedical Science and do a Diploma of Languages in Mandarin to keep my Chinese going. Um, and so it was an easy, easy pick for me in that respect. Uh, and then at the sort of end of my first year in biomedical science, they started this new double degree program um, with law. And, you know, my interest in, in human rights uh, and uh, the way we think about norms and laws and how they can potentially um, affect health and global health uh, meant that it was just such an immediate, um, easy for me to decide to apply. And so being able to have that combination is really uh, the sort of starting point for, for where my career has gone. And so did you did you grow up in Melbourne? So my family uh, were in Melbourne, but I spent um, a lot of my um, years from about 15 onwards in uh, in Beijing. I've got my family, my you know, Chinese family in Beijing that I lived with uh, when I went over there as a student at, at 16 and lived with them. Um, and then throughout my university would often go for the, the four months over the summer break. So I've got a habit of, of doing back-to-back winters, um, which is not the best thing for someone with who is a lawyer who already has a vitamin D problem um, to do. <laughs> but uh, but it has meant that I've been able to keep my connections um, and, and, and family in China as well. And so let's talk about the scholarship uh, and your decision uh, to apply for the John Monash Scholarship, because there are a lot of scholarships out there. So what was it that focused your attention on the John Monash Scholarship? So I think, uh, first and foremost, the fact that leadership and social justice was a were core values in um, not only just the ethos of the organisation, but in the way they were selecting candidates. Um, you know, I have had good grades, but I think for me, an organisation that was not just focused on the academic um, was really, was really critical. And, you know, so the the John Monash captures, goes across, you know, the the leadership, social justice, academic, other other pursuits. And, you know, sports and music don't necessarily have to fall within the traditional paradigms or arts that that many other scholarships use and I, I think as a result and you know I look at the other scholars that I've been fortunate enough to meet and be in, in the cohort with is um, you get this incredible range of people who are passionate about making an impact uh, in a really thoughtful and considered way um, and that becoming part of that broader community very much appealed to me. Um, you know the final reason is also a lot of people who are, are go on to do their masters in law or PhDs uh, in in my field tend to go to the UK. And for, for me, as if if it wasn't evident already, um, I I tend to not quite like those sorts of traditional environments. Um, and 
for me, uh, the US and in particular Georgetown University and their, their global health law program. I was going to ask that. Yeah, so, so what was it about? Because you can choose to study anywhere in the world uh, with that scholarship. So what, was the, what were the influencing factors behind you deciding upon Georgetown? Yeah, so, um, so I actually interned at WHO um, uh, for a little while. After I took a, a leave of absence from working at a law firm um, and when I did my master's, uh, I did some subjects over in, in Geneva and got these internships. And when I was at WHO, I met um, Professor Larry Gostin and he is you know, perhaps the leading global health lawyer uh, in the world and has essentially shaped the entire field. And I was speaking to him about my interest in, you know, considering doing a, a, um, a PhD. And he said, well, Alex, why don't you come to Georgetown? Uh, and so I was in Geneva when I did my first interview um, for uh, uh, for the John Monash, but you know, it was back in Australia for the second. And when I got the call um, that I uh, received the um, John Monash I, you know, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to Washington. Uh, I never really had any intent to even go on holiday to the United States. It was always for me, China. Um, and I, or, or, you know, Geneva when I was ended up living there. Um, and I remember I landed in August 2013 at midnight on a hot, steamy DC evening. And, um, you know, the rest is the last nine years. Any regrets? No, no, none. I think I think you know that 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 um, idiom of you know you only regret the opportunities you don't take, which I just I mangled that, but I, that is very much how I feel. Is you know I took I took this leap, this you know this incredible program over in the US, and knew nothing about the university. I just knew that you know I was uh, going to go get the opportunity to work with one of the you know the leading mind in the field and. You know, I think for anyone thinking about doing a PhD, you know, that's a bit of advice that I got from an Australian working at WHO that I've now passed on to even my own PhD student, but um, is, you know, find the people who are doing the work that interests you. That, that, um, and, you know, this was, Larry was someone who I'd cited all through my, my law honours thesis. Um, and... Uh, from that, I've been able to really um, have an incredible mentor, um, and uh, I, I just think there is no way I could have the career I have now if I had either stayed in Australia or gone to somewhere else. Um, I think in the US, I've found that universities and businesses and government um, NGOs they really reward people who um, have a um, a drive and a passion and a capacity to do things. The the idea of hierarchies is is um, you know there are lots of issues with the US and lots of uh, barriers to entry. You know I think um, that Australians are um, uh, you know very. <laughs> if you've ever travelled to the US, you would have known this. But um, but Australians are very warmly welcomed here in the US, and I think um, it's true. The, they are. The, yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that coupled with a really entrepreneurial um, environment, an innovative environment, means that, you know, I've been able to, I think, in nine years do what would have taken 20 or more if I'd stayed in Australia. So I'm keen to find out more about the work you're doing at the moment. Can you give us some insights in your day-to-day job and what that looks like? 
Yeah, so I'm my primary position is as an assistant professor at the Center for Global Health Science and Security. And there, you know, I have a teaching commitment. I've created my own courses that I teach at Georgetown, um, planetary health law, bringing together my interests of global health and climate change. Um, and I love teaching. It's one of my favorite, favorite things to do. And then in my research, I, um, I tend to uh, work on relatively sort of about a year-long grants with different international organisations or national organisations. Um, and so at the moment, you know, I'm doing a project for the CDC on, on, on COVID and government decision-making. Um, I'm doing a project for WHO on the, you know, pandemic treaty um, and the potential reforms to the international health regulations. Uh, I'm doing a project for the Department of State on um, investigations into biological weapons and, and barriers that might exist to sharing pathogens. And so I've got a very um, a, a, a wide range of different topics that I do um, uh, and, and funding from, you know, government and non-government sources. The Pandemic Treaty one, for example, is funded by Carnegie and they're, you know, in the US the philanthropy is just so um, enabling you know, the, to be given some money to explore an idea or something that, you know, you're passionate about. And so, you know, it'll be working on those projects, but I also sit on a number of national academies. I've sat on a number of national academies committees. And so, you know, often I'll have different, you know, either national or international advisory work. Um, you know, there's when you're the only person or the one of very few people that have that particular intersection, um, it does mean that those opportunities um, do arise. Um, and then, you know, if I look at today, it was meeting with uh, my PhD student and helping her develop her project, um, a couple of my postdocs on pandemic treaty. You're a very busy person, Alex, let me tell you, you're busy. <laughs> yeah, well, less media. I mean, I think 2020 and 2021 was significantly, I did a lot of media, um, as, as I saw as part of advocacy, trying to get that action and change. Um, and it's actually been nice as I've been sort of been sort of not doing as much media at all this year and it's allowed me to focus on some of these other issues so you know yeah it's it it's good it's good so looking looking at um the world as you do and where we are now with respect to COVID-19 do you think the worst is over if I can if I can put it that way with if you look at Australia you've got mask restrictions that are being lifted People are going back into offices. The numbers appear to be going down, although they're, they're still high. What What's your sense on where we're at with um, in, in tackling COVID? Yeah, so I think the Australian experience and the US experience are, are very different. Um, you know, we, we haven't had, uh, well, there's still our mask mandates to, in some places here in the US, but there is a norm of mask wearing. You know, when you've gone through the epidemic that we went through in the city here and even in Washington, D.C., um, you know, I don't think people will be removing their masks in indoor areas anytime soon over here. Um, you know, I, I still only eat outdoors, um, even though it's very cold. Um, and I think part of the reason is, you know, this is a highly transmissible variant. If, you know, I, the way I see it is if you are, out and about without a mask and even if you've been triple vaccinated like I have, um, you know, you probably will get it, um, but it's likely to be incredibly mild. But because of the potential risks of long COVID, that's not something I'm willing to, to gamble with for myself. Um, 
Whereas I think in Australia, maybe because, you know, had such a successful in terms of COVID numbers first, you know, two years with the, with the, um, the approach that was taken, um, there perhaps hasn't been that experience. So I, I, do, I do worry that maybe we will see as, as measures restricted, you know, a, a bit of a bump in cases uh, as it transits, particularly without, um, without many people having, having boosters compared to, say, New York City. That being said, for Omicron, I think we're, we are at the sort of tail end of this particular variant. Um, the nature is that once you're, the nature of a virus like this is once you start removing all these measures, it is more likely than not that we will have another variant emerge, whether that's a variant of concern. Right. Well, that's not good news. I don't like to hear that. You know, I mean, it's 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 possible and it's there, and I think it's really a it's a it's a roll of the dice of um, of whether that variant will be more transmissible, which um, is actually in many ways more worrying than uh, if it's more severe. But if it impacts immunity, um, or we see immunity waning, or if it is uh, more severe, you know, they're all things to to consider. So, I mean, I'm. I'm not alarmed. I'm cautious. Uh, I think we are very much in the the last, uh, the tail end of the marathon, but we're still in a marathon. You know, we could still trip at the end, and so uh, here's to here's to not. So just just going back to when you were saying you follow the alerts on ProMed. So the fact that we are now hopefully at the tail end, as you say, of of this. That doesn't mean that there's not another pandemic waiting to hit us, does it? No, in fact, just uh, the other night I finished a paper on on why we're not paying enough attention to influenza at the moment. Flu, pandemic flu, which is different to seasonal flu in terms of pandemic influenza is always the worry. It's the one we kind of have been watching for. But, you know, there are lots of coronaviruses. There's uh, now a lot of <laughs> a lot of research into going and sampling coronaviruses. Um, there are other viruses like Hendra, Nipah viruses that have the potential um, if in very if certain mutations occur. So it's just something that we watch. Um, but, you know, I think the most likely next pandemic we will see is probably going to be an influenza pandemic of some sort. Um, and it might be like eight, it might be like 2009 H1N1 and it's, you know, relatively mild. Um, so that's what we, you know, can hope for. But... You know, we also don't have to have pandemic threats. We can have epidemic threats. And we're going to continue to have COVID surges in places that don't have adequate, um, you know, vaccination coverage. We've seen an impact on particularly childhood vaccinations. So whether we see um, really bad um, measles outbreaks or potentially other um, childhood diseases that were, you know, once um, we had good coverage of vaccinations. Uh, so there's, you know, we don't necessarily have to be at the uh, the sort of the scale of of the uh, global scale. And the reality is to 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 contextualise it from a pandemic point of view, COVID nineteen uh, has been uh, is not in our worst case scenario categories at all. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's serious and it's severe and it's been very it's been critical. But when we're thinking about when we do pandemic plans, we are thinking about um, you know higher uh, higher transmission rates, higher potentially higher fatality rates. Um, but I think the, the the one thing I would add is long COVID is something that's very poorly understood, and we still don't know enough about it. Well, what's your understanding of that? What what is long COVID? 
Yeah, so it, it is a, it's a syndrome and a series of different symptoms. Like people will experience if they do have ongoing lingering symptoms post-acute infection, so, you know, five to six weeks after infection, we are seeing um, different, you know, cardiac issues in particular, neurological issues. Um, they're sort of the two, two main uh, sort of categories of, of issues that we're seeing. We don't really know what the long term, if this is just a, you know, it takes some people a bit longer or whether we actually have, um, you know, severe and or permanent, permanent damage. So we're just going to need to have more data on that. We also don't know, for, say, for, you know, kids, is that does their different, does it manifest differently? Or, and, you know, unfortunately, that's the sort of data that will probably take quite some time to, to get. And here's, here's hoping that this is just it takes some people a lot longer to get over the viral infection and the impacts. Um, but, you know, that's why my, my worry is when all the attention goes out of the acute phase, we forget about the long-lasting chronic impacts. Well, we've, we've spoken a lot about COVID and coronavirus and pandemics. <laughs> Not enough about you. What, what do you like to do in your spare time? How do you relax and enjoy yourself? So I, I, uh, I read. I love reading. I, um, I read a lot of very bad pulp. Like I, I don't necessarily read high literature um, because in my day job I'm reading too much. So I, need, I, um, I also I'm a gamer. So, you know, I'm very excited. There's a couple of games coming out this week that will probably take up my weekend. Have you got a gaming chair? I, I don't. I don't actually. I, I'm not a big fan of the racing racing chair style gaming chairs. What, what are your go-to games? Wow, Destiny 2 is a great one. Destiny 2. And I, the reason I love that is it's kind of been a lovely way to connect back. My, my partner was back in Australia and, and friends back in Australia also played. And so we could play together. Um, and that was a really lovely way of keeping that connection whilst I was over here. Uh, and so that one's got a, a, a soft spot. Destiny 2. Okay. Yeah. Familiar with Destiny 2. I'm not familiar with many games, to be honest. Minecraft and Fortnite. <laughs> no, they're, they're definitely not within my, uh, my area of, <laughs> of expertise. I, and I, I, I loathe to say, but I took a, took a break. Um, I worked for 527 days straight. Uh, and in June, I was like, okay, we don't have any variants. The, the timeline looks pretty good. So June 2021, um, I took a, a bit of time in Hawaii because it's the closest I could get to Australia at that point in time. <laughs> I wanted to just dip my feet in the, in the same ocean. Um, and I, um, I picked up a really nice ukulele, but I, I don't know if I can, uh, I don't know if I can publicly show it anymore. So, oh so dear! Like, well, ukuleles <laughs> have been in the headlines. Yeah, I'm exactly. Sure I'm sure you've seen. I might have to retire that one and go back to the piano. So, <laughs> Alex, it's been wonderful talking with you today from from Sydney to New York. We will follow your career with much interest. It's been um, it's been wonderful having you on the program and we hope to see you back in Australia at, at some point soon, but good luck with your career and your research and all the very best. And thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. It's been fun.